Jesus said, did we not heal ten? Where are the other nine? Did not only this foreigner come to give thanks to God? You get that this morning? thing that we need to learn to do is to be thankful. To be thankful. I want to ask you during this uh, time of prayer now, what do you have to be thankful for? I want you to think about that for just a little bit. What do you have to be thankful for? And if the first thing that comes to your mind is nothing, then you need to seriously get right with God. Because God has done so much for you. And uh, we are to give thanks in everything, the Bible says. And then it adds this onto the end of it. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The will of God. You know, people agonize over the will of God. What is the will of God? I'm seeking the will of God. Well, there are some things that are really clear about the will of God. And uh, being thankful is one of those things. In fact... A characteristic of the lost world is being unthankful. Let's not be like them. And so what I'd like for you to do during this time is to uh, tell somebody right around you what you are thankful for today, particularly not just the material things. That's fine if you do that. But what has God done for you? And why are you thankful to God? So I'm going to give you... Just a moment to kind of share that with the people that are right around you. Share two or three things each. And then I'll lead us in a word of prayer. And we'll just give, put them to practice what we studied in Sunday school this morning. Give thanks to God. Okay. Okay, let's pray together now. Lord, if there's anybody on the earth that ought to be grateful, that ought to be optimistic and of good cheer, if there's anybody that ought to be grateful, it should be a child of God. And we forget all of the things you have brought into our lives Certainly we can think about all of the physical things that make our lives comfortable, that make our lives easy, that make our lives convenient. We think about the things that our ancestors didn't have. They couldn't get relief from the cold like we can. They couldn't get relief from the heat like we can. They didn't have all the varieties of food that we had. They didn't always have clean water. All kinds of things, Lord. You can also think about, Lord, what we eat and how we uh, just, most of us, the vast majority of us, we don't have to pray for daily bread, we, but we do need to give thanks for it because we've always eaten. We don't, it doesn't even dawn on us that we might not. And so, Lord, as we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we ask you, Lord, to make us and remind us that you're the one that gave that to us. And we ought to give thanks to you for just the meals that we eat every day. Thank you, Father, for friends that we have. Thank you for people 
who believe the same things that we believe and we can fellowship with them and we can find, find and take refuge in gathering together. And uh, Lord, it's a hostile world out there, but we feel safe when we're here together with our brothers and sisters in Christ because of you and because of you in them and because of the truth of your word. And we thank you for the comfort that we receive in all of that. We thank you, Father, even if we're going through the valley of the shadow of death, and we do want to pray for those who are grieving today. But even in that, we can be thankful, for David said that, uh, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. And we can always praise you for your presence. You're always with us, no matter what we're going through. We sang about that just a little while ago. And we can thank you, Father, uh, as we think about sickness we think about having wonderful hospitals and we think about having medicines and we think about all of the knowledge that you've given humanity. We thank you for all of that. We thank you, Father, that even if we are going through a rough time, going through a trial, we thank you for your presence and your power and we thank you for the hope because people do get saved and prodigals do come home and marriages are restored and things and relationships get right. And we thank you for that. And we thank you, Father, above everything else, that way back in eternity past, before you ever created the earth, the universe, and before you ever created us, that Jesus Christ was the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world because you knew and planned for the fact that humanity was going to sin against you. And you paid for our sin. And Jesus was not an afterthought. He was the forethought. And I thank you, Lord, that you sent him to earth. And he lived a perfect life. And then when he died on the cross, he took the wrath of God in our place. Rose from the dead, triumphing over death, hell, and the grave. And that he is our Lord and Savior. And we thank you that when we depart earth, we're changing addresses to go to heaven and live in the house of the Lord. And our eyes will behold the King. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you today that uh, I know Tim and Mary Shantz are thankful today having that baby. And we thank you for that and pray that you would bless them and Bless that uh, child, that new baby, and pray that they would have health and strength and a good recovery, and we praise you for this. And so, Lord, with all the things that we may desire and all the things we may not really like, don't let us be the ones that fail to say thank you. So thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles, please, and uh, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians today. And let's go to chapter 4. And the question I want to answer this morning is a question a lot of people ask. Why does God forbid sex outside of marriage? Why does God forbid sex outside of marriage? And when we think about all of this, we think about how much of our culture right now, we are drowning in this. We were obsessed with it. Everything seems to go back to a sexual relationship. 
And we had uh, about uh, 50 years ago a sexual revolution, and we've never been the same since. And we have not been as happy since then. And uh, relationships have not been good since then. And people's personal well-being has not been good since then. Drugs, alcohol, suicide, all of those kind of things do not point to a happy, productive society. They point to a people who have sought happiness wherever they could find it, doing whatever they wanted to do, following the if-it-feels-good-do-it mantra, and then finding nothing but emptiness and depression in the, the midst of all of that. And so they have to find some way to cope, some way to deal with all of it. There's a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, and a lot of social problems that come along with that. And so uh, could it be that in this ancient book that we look at, we find that God indeed does have a better way, and if we would just follow his ways, then uh, things would be so much better and so much easier. And this is such a problem because everybody in their depravity and in their humanity we face temptations in this area of one type or another. And so uh, Paul knew the, Thessalonian, the, Thessal the Thessalonians, I can get that out, would have these kind of problems because they lived also in a society that was drenched in all of this. Uh, very, very little uh, moral or immoral restraint, we might say. And so uh, Paul wanted the church because he wasn't able to be there very long with them to be insulated against the things that were going to trip them up, mess them up, and uh, especially in their walk with God. And so he writes to these people and uh, talks to them about abstaining from sexual immorality or fornication, as we might call it. And fornication is the Greek word porneo. We get our word pornography from that. And it's a wide word that means everything from just lustful thoughts all the way to the extreme things like uh, bestiality even. It's, it's everything that's in there. Any kind of, of uh, sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. And so, uh, why would God take time to put this in his word if Christians couldn't do this or wouldn't struggle with it? Well, he wouldn't. He puts it in here because it's a real problem even for believers, much less the lost world. And the lost world is not going to listen to him, but you and I are. We're his children. His spirit indwells us. We love him, he loves us, and so we've got to take time to look at this, to think about it, to answer the questions, and maybe you've even wondered yourself. I mean, maybe you've followed the rules, but you don't really have much of a why, so uh, let's talk about this this morning. And when we think about this, uh, sex outside of marriage causes so many problems. Think about this. Your flesh, your depravity... Whatever is left behind of it, because we still battle against it, the highest thrill you can give the flesh is to rebel against God. Okay, think about that. It loves to rebel against God. That's why your flesh finds it so easy to be grumpy instead of to rejoice in the Lord. Your flesh finds it so easy to gossip. Your flesh finds it so easy to lie. Your flesh finds it so easy 
to do any number of things like that. It's just easy. It's like going downhill. And uh, the flesh loves anything that rebels against God. So when God says that sexual activity is only for marriage, what is the flesh naturally going to do? It's going to find its pleasure in rebelling against God. So when you combine the physical thrill of sexual activity combined with rebellion against God, those two things come together, and brother, they are powerful. And a lot of people that say, well, it doesn't matter because we love each other and we're going to get married anyway. And then there's a problem because when they get married and all of a sudden the blessing of God is on that relationship, the flesh starts going, well, this isn't as fun as it used to be. And this isn't what I really thought and what I really wanted. And that's the seedbed for a lot of affairs and other things that happen. Had it been done God's way, it would have made a huge difference. I want you to think of the fact that it is an appetite. And when you think about your physical appetite for food, you know, all of the old people at Thanksgiving when I was growing up, they would eat and then they'd push back, oh, I can't eat another bite and I won't eat again for another two weeks. And two hours later, they're nibbling on the turkey over by the stove at grandma's house, right? And then you watch them over the years as they get bigger and bigger and bigger because obviously they didn't stop eating. In fact, the more they eat, the more they want, and the more they have a capacity to contain, and the bigger they get. Well, think about this. The sex drive that we have is given by God. In fact, before the fall, he told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Okay? That's a pre-fall situation. But when you think about it, as an appetite, what happens? The more you engage and indulge in it, it doesn't satisfy anything. It creates hunger for even more and a capacity for more. And it goes on and on and on and on and on to even some of the most perverted things you could imagine. So when our children are being taught these kind of things, having them implanted in their minds in kindergarten, first, second, third, fourth grade, that type of thing, what do you think is going to happen? And when teenagers are engaged in it, and as adults, we say, oh, well, boys will be boys, sow your wild oats. And that old hypocritical double standard where the boys were supposed to do all that, but the girls were supposed to be chaste virgins when they marry, that's ungodly as well to hold the different genders to a different standard. You think about that and you wonder what's going on in our society. It doesn't relieve anything. The sexual revolution didn't relieve anything. It fired it up into things that we never thought that we would be dealing with, at least in our lifetime. And we're not going forward, we're going backwards. It harms future relationships. There are different comparisons people make and uh, that they think about as they move on through their life and think about how it affects their children as uh, the divorce rate climbs and as people have affairs and homes are broken up and some kids don't even know who their fathers are. Think about all of the things we face today and how it harms people and it hurts our children. Did you know that in Oklahoma, 44.4% of our children, of our babies, are born outside of marriage? This is in the Bible Belt, folks. 
44%, nearly half, are born outside of marriage. When we talk about poverty, there was a study that was done by the Brookings Institute not too long ago. And it said three things to do to avoid poverty. And this is by William Galston. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He's a columnist. And he's not a conservative. He's a former Clinton advisor. And yet, what did they find when they did the research? Graduate from high school. That's the best thing you can do to avoid poverty. Graduate high school. Number two, have children after marriage. Number two. And number three was have the child after age 20. Helps to have a little bit of maturity on you. And of the people that did just those three, just those three things, 79%, 79%, 8 out of 10, did not fall into poverty. Where do we see attacks today? Morality, family, all of those kind of things. You can see where the devil has come to but kill, steal, and destroy. And he's doing a good job at it. And we're just stupid enough not to do even the basic things that come along. 79% of those who did this did not raise their kids in poverty. There's another thing. Immorality fuels the abortion industry. Did you know there's a lot of money, a lot of money being made in the abortion industry. If there were not, it would die. And so the immorality that goes on in our country fuels the abortion industry. How do I know that? Well, when you think about the uproar that, says, that has come about because of the possibility that Roe v. Wade might be overturned, and to that, by the way, I say praise God for that, but uh, most Americans think that if the Supreme Court does indeed overturn Roe v. Wade, that means abortion is going to be illegal. Well, no, that's not the truth. It's going to go back to the states, and every state will decide whether it is legal or not. And there's such a protest over this, and women are saying, this is my body. I want you to just stop and think about that is a blasphemous statement. Abortion has been called the sacrament, the sacrament of the left. Jesus said at the Lord's Supper, this is my body broken for you. Liberals today say, it's my body and we'll break the baby for me. It's interesting how that gets turned around. The same kind of idea. Jesus sacrificed his body for us. And today in our society, for our own convenience, we want a baby to sacrifice his body for us. And with all of this that is going on, and even after, if Roe v. Wade is, under, uh, is overturned, it'll be back to the states. And so you know what California will do to the point to where they even want a woman to be able to have the right to choose even after the baby is born. I mean, it's just getting worse and worse and worse in so many ways. It's a, it's a heart problem more than it is anything else. And uh, when you think about the numbers of abortions, 
This is going back a few years where there are about um, 890,000 abortions taking place in a year, some more, some, yet, some less. And uh, when you think about the fact that this statistic comes up, uh, let me get to the right place that I want. Come on, turn page here. Um, in 2019, okay, that's just a couple of years ago, three years ago, I guess, unmarried women accounted for 86% of all abortions, and that's according to the Centers to, for Disease Control, whatever you may think of them. 86%. You know what that tells me? If people were not having sex before or in addition to marriage, the abortion rate would drop dramatically. Think about that. Let that sink in. You see, all of this stuff fits together so that men and women can live the way they want to live and to do what's right in their own eyes without any consequences. When Obama was president, he said that he, uh, with his daughters, if they were to make a mistake and to get pregnant, he would not want them, listen, punished with a child. What's happened to us? We lose our morality, and then we lose our value for human life because we're playing around with what we want and what we think is good and what we think is pleasurable, and we don't care what it does to anyone else. And so uh, all of this kind of stuff going on is uh, just a terrible, terrible thing. And we can try to make it right. Somebody said if you uh, wanted hard-boiled eggs, but instead of putting them in a pan of boiling water, you put them in the freezer, they would be hard all right, but they sure wouldn't be boiled. And no matter what we try to do, we try to say, well, this is just as good as a hard-boiled egg which to me, I don't like those anyway. But uh, nonetheless, it's not. And the same thing is true with the way that we have chosen to live as a society. We may say it's just as good. We've got our birth controls. We've got abortion. We've got freedom to do anything with anyone we want. It's wide open, and it pretty well is right now. And yet we find the suicide rate is also going up. We find that the rates of depression are also going up. And we find, too, that even in churches, believers are being tripped up, stumbled, or maybe even tackled from behind by these same things. And it has an effect on us. So let's read what Paul wrote in First Thessalonians. And we'll go to... Uh, Chapter 4, let's see, there was another thing I wanted to read before. Uh, this came from a commentary by William Barclay. Let me read it before we read the text. It may seem strange that Paul would go to such lengths to uh, inculcate sexual purity in a Christian congregation, but two things have to be remembered. First, the Thessalonians had only newly come into the Christian faith, and they had come from a society in which chastity was an unknown virtue. They were still in the midst of such a society, and the infection of it was playing upon them all the time. It would be exceedingly difficult for them to um, unlearn 
what they had for all of their lives accepted as natural. Second, there never was an age in history when marriage vows were so disregarded and divorce so disastrously uh, easy. In fact, it was in the days of the Thessalonians uh, where a man could have a wife and she was simply for the purpose of bearing legitimate children that would inherit his estate. For his pleasure, he went to a prostitute and the prostitutes were tied into the religious systems there. They were in the temples where they worshipped and uh, that was how you commune with the gods. And pedophilia and homosexuality was also available to anyone who wanted it. So no wonder Paul felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to write to this. We may look at our society, but we look back at that society and it was much, 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 much worse than what we find here. So let's read 1 Thessalonians 4 with that in mind. Let's apply it to us and may God grant blessing on the reading of his word. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk or live and to please God. For you know what commandment we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. There it is again. Will of God. Your sanctification. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel. I believe that means body. In sanctification or holiness and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who also has given us his Holy Spirit. So Paul is pretty firm about all of this. And we're going to look into, well, why? Why is he so passionate about this? Why is he so strong about this? Why is this such an issue? Just live and let live. I don't care what anyone does in the privacy of their bedroom, right? It's up to you. It's up to whoever, well, you know, whatever and whoever and, you know, however. Is that what Paul says? No, he says that God has something else and it's much, much better if we would just listen to him. Consider this. Why did God forbid sex outside of marriage? And by that, extramarital affairs as well as premarital sex and all of that type of thing. Why did he forbid it? Number one, Sexual sin destroys spiritual fruitfulness and blessing. Now, Paul says that he wants them to abound, right? To abound more and more. That's called spiritual growth. That's called the uh, blessings of the harvest. That's called becoming what God wants you to be, maturing and producing and reproducing and all of those kind of things, disciple-making and all of that. And so Paul starts off this paragraph here that talks about sexual sin with that statement. What does that lead us to believe? Well, it leads me to believe 
that when people get involved in sexual sin, everything kind of comes to a screeching halt. It's hard to be immoral and really get anything out of your Bible reading. Hard to be immoral and get anything out of a sermon. Hard to be immortal and have a, uh, immoral and have a strong prayer life. It's hard to be immoral and have fellowship with other people who are striving to live with, work with uh, God, and walk with God, and to please Him. You see what I mean? The guilt, the shame, the fear of discovery, the secrecy that has to be with it, all of those kind of things are antithetical to who we are in Christ and the openness and the joy and the freedom that we're supposed to have. So that'd be number one. You just can't worship. You just can't really walk with God when you're going against Him and against what He says. The second thing that happens, the Bible tells us here that there is a will of God for us. Did you notice that? The will of God. So I would say, number two, it automatically diverts you from the will of God. You're out of the will of God. Out of the will of God. And God's not going to bless what he's cursed. God's not going to bless something that is bad, destructive, hurtful, harmful. He's not going to put his blessing on that. In fact, he says that God resists the proud. That can even be a believer. When we take matters into our own hands, when we do our own thing, when we decide what's good, bad, right, or wrong, then all of a sudden we find God resisting us as the proud. But he gives grace, unmerited favor, and forgiveness to the humble. So humility is what we want. Pride is what we don't want. And so we think about this. I want to walk with God. I want to walk in his favor. I want to walk in his blessing. I want to walk in his will. I want to walk in his victory. I want to walk in his power. I want to walk with my armor on. I want to walk like that. But at the same time, I'm engaging in something that is immoral. How is that going to work? And here's the answer. It is not going to work at all. The will of God is that you abstain from sexual immorality, period. It's not up for option. It's not, it would be nice or it would be better if you would do this. The will of God flatly stated is for Christians to avoid anything and everything like that. And so when we're out of the will of God, we can't expect to have the blessing and the power and the peace of God and the security of God in our lives. Number three, he moves on to say this. Sexual sin humiliates you and opposes the work of the Spirit. How many proud, arrogant people have you seen, celebrities and others like that, until they get caught in some sort of a scandal and then their whole countenance changes? And they may even, you know, when they're being escorted out where they've been arrested for whatever they do, they cover up, right? Pull their hoods up and pull their coats up and cover up their face. Where's the arrogance now? Well, there's something about all of this that we need to understand. The devil wants to humiliate you. The humiliation that you face in front of your children when your sin is discovered the humiliation of facing your church family when your sin is discovered, the humiliation that you live with for years whenever anything is brought up or whenever it's preached on. I was preaching one time 
And uh, I said during an invitation time, I don't care if you've even committed adultery. God will forgive you. That was basically what I said. It was in that context. A lady met me right outside of the doors and was very, very, very angry. And she said, you know about my boyfriend. Why were you pointing me out? Well, you know the old saying? If you throw a rock in a pack of dogs... The one that barks is the one that you hit. I think about how humiliating all of this kind of stuff is. How embarrassing it is. How people indulge in it. How people participate in it. And they do it with all kinds of... They plan for it. They spend money on it. All of these kind of things. And then whenever it's discovered how everything changes about their life. Marriages break up. There are times when the relationship between parents and children are affected by all of this. When you think about how sad it is when a parent dies and the children are going through that parent's things, and then all of a sudden they find out, they discover some things that have gone on, it changes everything, doesn't it? And we feel sorry for them. And it's horrible. And it points them in the wrong direction. And it stumbles them. And you know what the Bible says about stumbling children. And yet we live under the illusion that we can do what we want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else But can I say to you very clearly, that's a lie. It not only hurts you, it does hurt other people. And the long-lasting effects of that can last, indeed, for generations. It humiliates you and it opposes the work of the Holy Spirit who wants to give you love, joy, and peace. Well, it takes away every bit of that. And I suppose that's why promiscuity and alcohol and drug abuse and that type of thing all work together because you've got to do something to live with and cope with the guilt of all of that. Number four, it positions you as a God denier, which I've called a functional atheist. Oh, I know you're not an atheist, but you're living like it. You're living apart from God. You're living in opposition to God. You're living as though God doesn't exist. Because the truth of the matter is, if the evolutionist is right, then none of this really matters, what I'm saying this morning. Live like an animal, because that's all you are. But if what I say is right, by the way it is, and there is a God who created us, then what happens when a believer starts living in immorality? You're living like, ah, God's dead. There is no God. I can do whatever it is that I want. And you ignore the Holy Spirit's conviction. You ignore what the Word of God says. You ignore what wise believers say to you and counsel you and are praying for you. You ignore all of that and live as a functional atheist because you're living, verse 5, in passion and lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. So your evangelism goes down the tubes, doesn't it? Your impact and influence on other people in a godly manner just out the window because uh, you're not living up to what you proclaim and what you have always said. Number five, 
it selfishly robs others. He was talking here about taking advantage of, in verse 6, and defrauding a brother. So let's say there's a teenage couple and they decide that they're going to have sex because they are just so in love they can't help it. Then they break up. Then they marry somebody else. And that somebody else has been defrauded. Something has been taken from that person and uh, stolen from the person they really were supposed to marry. When you have an affair, you are cheating on your spouse. You're robbing them and robbing the other person's spouse as well. And so it's the kind of thing to where we as Christians are supposed to love other people, help other people, serve other people, be there for other people, support other people, love other people. But this puts you in a position to where you're a thief and you're a robber. You are a taker, not a giver. You are someone who will do your own thing and have your own way instead of someone who lays down their life for the glory of God and for the cause of Christ. That you're saying to the Lord Jesus, the way you created me and what you have given me, it's not good, it's not right, it's not enough. So here, take it and keep it. I'll go find my happiness my own way and in my own time. And you know how that always ends up. Think of the prodigal son being by the hog pen. The book of Proverbs warns over and over and over and over about the perils of adultery and all of the things that go with it. And so it selfishly robs others. You are taking advantage of and defrauding your brother in this matter. Not to mention if the man or woman that you are committing the adultery with or the premarital sex with, if they're a believer, you are robbing from them as well and defrauding them. You're supposed to be building them up, not taking from them, not using them, not objectifying them, not satisfying your evil, lustful desires on them, but you're supposed to serve them and love them. And of course, you're not doing that. And number six... It brings you out of blessing to chastisement. Because the Lord is the avenger of ALL, all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. You know what Paul is saying? God's not just going to avenge lost people who do this. That's a given. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to a church. He's talking to believers. And we find today that we are kind of going back into a repeat of all of this. And we want to worship. We want to be fruitful. We want to be impactful. We want to make a difference in the world. We want to glorify the Lord. Except in this area, leave me alone here. And I'll do as I please. And I'll do what I want. And then, Lord, when I get ready and when I get through over here, I'll come back and then I'll be ready to glorify you again. You know what the Lord says to that? No. No. Paul said, I'm concerned that I, having preached the gospel, might be disqualified. It's not that he would lose his salvation. But opportunities would begin to shrink. 
Set on a shelf is what that means. You know, as a believer, all of us should desire to be used more and more and more by the Lord and for His, and for his glory. But there are so many things today that are taking us away from that, messing up our lives, messing up our homes, messing up our children, and mostly messing up our walk with God. Because God says, I'm the avenger. In other words, it's not a victimless crime. You're the victim. You're the victim. It does have consequences. And you're going to reap what you sow. And not only that, but God, your heavenly Father who loves you, is not going to let you get away with it. He is going to be the one who disciplines you. And so we wonder today, why isn't the church having more impact on society? Well, I'm sure we could come up with a lot of reasons, but I think sexual sin would have to be right up there at the top based on what Paul says here. And when we think about all of these things that Paul warned us about, if these things are not happening... If we're not living in the blessing of God and in the will of God, and if we're defrauding our brothers instead of serving them, and all of these things that we've talked about, then how does that impact us as salt and light in a society? And I'm going to say this, it impacts it greatly because the salt's lost its savor. We're no different than they are. And we are to strive to be different, not just simply moralizing ourselves, but to be filled with the Spirit, to walk according to the Spirit of God and the ways of God and according to the Word of God. Now, if you want a good example of that, everybody probably has an aunt or an uncle or a cousin or a parent or a grandparent who has committed this type of sin and you, you've seen firsthand what's going on, so I beg you, don't repeat it. But you can also look in the Word of God. Look at King David's life before Bathsheba and after Bathsheba. In Psalm 32, verse 3, David says concerning that, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. It will affect you physically. Sexual sin will affect you physically. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, that wasn't a blessing, by the way. And my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. It affected him physically, didn't it? But then here's the good news. Because I don't know what you've done. I don't know where you've been. I don't know where you are. But I do know this. We serve a merciful God who will forgive. Listen to what David's testimony is. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Now listen to this. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Pause, take a break, and think about that. Because David's sin didn't stop and end with Bathsheba, did it? Oh, this is just between us. It's private. It doesn't hurt anybody else. No, it, it always does. 
the fear of being discovered, the covering up of sin to protect your reputation, the unwanted child, all of those kind of things led to David becoming a murderer on top of everything else. Because it doesn't just stay in one place. It spreads and it spreads and it spreads. And it'll affect things that you never thought it would affect. It'll affect your attitude. It'll affect your productivity at work. It'll affect the way you treat other people. It'll affect your personality. It'll affect your demeanor. It'll affect everything about you because it doesn't just stay in one place. This, after all, my friends, is the devil who comes but to kill, steal, and destroy. And this has been one of the most effective areas that he's ever used. And it affects all of us Paul even told a pastor, Timothy, flee from youthful lust. Now, why would he say that if that were not a problem? Why would he say that if pastors couldn't do that? Why would he say that if believers didn't have those kind of problems? I just love the Lord so much. None of that's a problem. You're either a liar or there is something biologically wrong with you. That's why it's written to us. And that's why it's also not only written, but it's something that Paul says... God has not called us into sexual immorality, but into holiness. Now, did you catch that last part? He says, if you ignore this, and I'll give you the same warning, you're not ignoring man. You're ignoring God, who sent us His Holy Spirit. And so today, first of all, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord and you need to be saved, I've got good news for you. We have a God who sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins, every one of them, and He paid for them in full. And if you will trust in Him today that His death, His burial, and His resurrection paid for all of your sins, you know what He'll do? He'll take all of that dirty, nasty stuff that is in your life, and He'll put it on His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll take the righteousness of his own son, the Lord Jesus, who never sinned. And he'll put it upon you and you'll have a new start, a new life, and a new relationship with God. And if you are already a Christian, you say, well, I've fallen into sin and I'm embarrassed. Well, I understand that. You should be. It's sin. But even for you, understand that God didn't quit being merciful and being a forgiver after you got saved, he still, did you hear what I said? He still forgives sins because all of your sins, past, present, and future, were paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And thirdly, you ought to pray for people. You ought to pray for people. There are so many people that are addicted to pornography. There are so many people that are engaged in uh, immoral heterosexuality, premarital sex, teenagers and college students and others, not to mention affairs, adulteries, all of those kind of things. Now we move on to people that are trapped in homosexual sin and then the transgender type thing. I mean, it's amazing what the devil has done and how much it is destroying. How many people are affected by all of this. Can you imagine? Well, some of you can because you've been there. 
You've got a child. You've got a grandchild. You've got a niece or a nephew who was in that movement. And it hurts and it divides the family. Oh, if we would only do things God's way. What a difference. What a difference it would make. You say, well, I have. Good for you. Don't get arrogant because let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Well, I'm involved in something right now. Then you need to get out of it and you need to repent and get right with God. Well, I did it in the past, but I can't seem to get over it. Then you need to believe that God really does forgive and cleanse his children and uh, trust that he has made you clean and walk on and live for Jesus all the rest of your days. You never know who you're going to encounter. And we have the message of hope and the message of reconciliation and the power of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to back it up because there is victory in Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray for people today. And I pray that all of us would hear this, think about it much deeper than anything I've had time to talk about. And oh, Holy Spirit, guide us in the right way. Save those who have never been saved. Liberate us, as Jesus taught us to pray. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we'll remember that it's your kingdom and power and glory that we live in, and that's what we need so much. Deliver us, Lord, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.